So, we've spoken about things we shouldn't look at because they pull us in the wrong direction. And we've spoken about things we should look at to pull us in the right direction. And we've spoken about things we should look at but not directly. That we should look at, we should interact with the spiritual primarily by means of the physical. That that's how we're meant to interact. Um, and now, the Pasuk is telling us, I think we ended last time with essentially the statement in Tehillim and Pei Dalid, God is a sun and a shield for us. And the idea that that was, that was the not looking, we look, at, we look at spirituality primarily indirectly. And when, when it's directly, we require more filtering and when it's indirectly, sometimes we can have more exposure, but indirectly. Excuse me. And that tzitzis is, is a way, but it's not the only way. It's an example of how we look into the physical world and see it as a way of attaching ourselves and interacting with the spiritual. Okay. So now... We, I think we also spoke about, we spoke about the idea, wrong paragraph, we started discussing this process of you, the seeing leads to thinking, the thinking leads to doing. Va'asisa mosam, you should do the mitzvos. So Rav Schwab I, I saved this in a way for the end because um, the way he says it goes by so quickly that we kind of needed to delve, I thought, into each of the little parts of what he said in advance in order to hear what he was saying. Although we have no conception of the meaning of kise hakavod, if the tzitzis remind us of the of the sea, and the sea reminds us of the rakia, and the rakia reminds us of the kise hakavod, but we don't have a conception of kise hakavod, and certainly not of its color. He puts color in quotes because a spiritual creation doesn't have a physical color. We can understand why the sky is blue, and part of the part of the concept here is really in the same way that we've said we relate to the spiritual by means of the physical. And we've spoken long ago about the importance of parables and symbols, um, not as empty meaning, but the opposite, as giving us a way to relate and connect to ideas based on what we can relate and experience, relate to and experience in the world and we can then take those ideas and use them to understand things which we can't tangibly sense and feel. So I believe he's saying here as well, I'm just going to close this I believe he's saying here as well, we can't conceive of the Kisei HaKavod. We can't, there's no color to the Kisei HaKavod. And yet color in this world tells us something. There is a meaning behind color. So if we can connect to the experience of color physically 
and we can, under, we can try and begin to understand the spiritual concept of color in the same way that we might have talked about the spiritual concept of a hand or of hair or of anything else. So he says, we have pointed out in our comments on Yotzer or Uvore Choshech that the vast majority of the space of the universe is dark and that the billions of light sources and reflectors in it are only small points of light. The stars and the moons and the planets, for all that they're big and all that they're bright, they don't illuminate the darkness of space. Because relative to the size of space, they're very, very, very small. The sun illuminates the darkness of space surrounding the Earth. The mixture, okay, so we have the Earth, which let's say gets light directly from the sun and even reflects it. So there's illumination at Earth level. But there's illumination that's a bit beyond Earth level. That's our atmosphere. That's the rakia. We talked a little about Rakia. So that space, that atmosphere, that sky is a mixture of the darkness of the universe and the light of the sun. Where they combine, we see blue. That's a very, very different way to think about the color of the sky. It's scientifically true. <laughs> it's the truth. But it also gives us then something to begin to explore in terms of what it means then that something has a color. So the sky has a color. We call that color sky blue, let's say. It's related to Tcheles. We know that because Tcheles is Dome la Yam and Yam is Dome la Rakia. The Rakia has this color that is similar to similar to Tcheles that is caused by a blending of the dark of the universe and the light of the sun. And he refers back to explanations on the brachos before Shema, on Yotzer Or, which we didn't learn inside. Darkness is representative of Midas Hadin. The fact that there's darkness in the world helps us to relate to emotional darkness and spiritual darkness and a state of din where things are, are strict and perhaps demanding and perhaps difficult. And the light of the sun represents midas harachamim. So when we speak of the kisei hakavod, when he speaks of the kisei hakavod, I don't know when I speak of the kisei hakavod, but when, <laughs> when Rav Schwab learns about the kisei hakavod, he says, we understand that this is a reference to God's direct supervision of the world. Kisi HaKavod means a throne of glory. So that's an aspect of God sitting on a throne. That's a king. That's judgment. That's an aspect of judgment and something beyond judgment, which is care and attention. That God is paying attention to the world and involved in what goes on. That is the combination of Midas Hadin and Midas HaRachamim. And what better symbolism can we have for this than sky blue tzecheles, a color which is representative of the combination of darkness and light of din and rachamim. That's a whole different way of thinking about the sky and the sea and the tzecheles and the kisei which is 
that the color techeles, which we've learned, is the word tachlis, objective, or goal, based on the root of kol, all. All, which is the whole that is greater than the sum of the parts, like the number 50, which is the gematria of kol. All, which is vayar elokim es kol asherasa, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good because the all is the inclusion of that which we experience as tov and that which we experience as ra. All of it. And all of it is tov me'od. It's even better. And that is a blending of what we see as good and bad, of what we see as din and rachamim. How it interacts, the interaction from our perspective is din and rachamim, even though it's unified. And that blending together in the language of color, that's called tcheles. In the language of atzilus, that's called kisya kavod. In the language of bria, that's called rakia. And in the language of yitzira, that's called yamim, oceans. And in the physical world, that's called tcheles. Okay, I sort of just like could stop there because I really feel like it's enough to let settle. Because even though we've experienced other places where we've talked about what is the representation in this world, the, the physical world is expressions of spiritual reality. But I don't know that I've ever really experienced that with color. And so it's really a different way to think. It's funny, I never thought about it that way before because really we know that color is very evocative. People wear certain colors to say certain things. You know, you remember the power ties, you know, in the late 80s. <laughs> I mean, people still wear power ties. They just, I don't think they call them that anymore. But we all know that certain colors do evoke certain, you know, people have some colors make them feel happier. Some colors are warmer or cozier. Or, so it's not strange to us that color has a meaning beyond the, the physical wavelengths of light that are reflected back. In fact, what color is, is, an at, is what we can see of the filtering of the combined light. If we're going to say that the light is really all the, the mashal for the shefa and the bracha, then when we see something as a color, what we're seeing is only that aspect of it that we're able to see through its filter. Whenever we see, if I see, um, you know, this shirt is black, this shirt is purple, this shirt is pink, so it's because there's a certain amount of light that's coming from the light fixtures and through the windows. And depending on the physical structure, the atomic structure of the material, only some of that comes back. So it's actually a perfect mashal for, for conceptualizing and for beginning to approach the idea that Hashem is one and everything he does is good. And yet, we experience it through different interactions and different kinds of connections, some of which look to us like Midas Hadin, that's one color, some of which look to us like Midas HaRachamim, which looks like another color, in the same way that depending on, right, it's, it's literally the filter for the light that allows us to see a part of it. It's still true, it was there in the original light all along, but some of it we didn't see. It got absorbed along the way and we just never saw it at all. I heard a mashal, I think Rabbi Leff was saying this, he was saying that um, 
he was giving it as a mashal for mitzvos. That God's will, Hashem is echad, and his ratzon is echad. His will is one. So how do we understand that there are 613 mitzvos? He said it's like um, if you would have a light fixture that was a globe around the bulb. And in the globe, you have 613 little sliding windows. So if you open one, you look through this window, you see light. You look through that window, you see light. But you're seeing it from different sides. But it's all one light. But I think really the muscle of the color is more accurate. Because there's this thing we, we would say in the physical world, we'd call it white light. And then it breaks. And it goes through. And depending on the material, on the interaction with the material, we get a different kind of light. And depending on our interactions with God, we see a different kind of light. But it's all really one light. Now, he goes one more step. Good morning. He goes one more step with the white, because there are white strings and there are trellis strings. The white strings represent... Uh, we mentioned this before, but he mentions it with a little more detail. The white strings represent purity, as in freedom from sin, or cleansed clean from sin. The blue strings represent the positive aspect of the Kedusha. They both are an element of Kedusha, which is where we're leading to. We're leading to... You shall be holy, sanctified to God. So the white represents the, the say negative, but it's not a bad thing. Negative as in, I don't, I don't even know what the right word is. Right? But, but not doing the wrong thing. So then you're cleansed. But doing the right thing is a positive. That's the blue. The blue is the being kadosh to Hashem. Okay. Now I'm going to bring, I'd like to bring, a different piece from Rav Schwab. From Mayan Beis Hashueva. It's not in the book on prayer. At least I didn't notice it there. Where he essentially asks the question, well, there's kind of two questions here. The first is, in this verse, it says, They will be for you as tzitzis, or isam also, you'll see them. You will remember all the mitzvahs of God, and do them. In the next verse, the Pasuk says, In order that you will remember, and do all of my mitzvahs. So first of all, why is it repeated? Or apparently repeated? And the second question is, how come in the first verse, you can't win. Either you're all together or you're not all together. Okay. The second question is, that in the first passage it says, you will remember all the mitzvos 
you will remember all the mitzvos and do them. And in the second verse, it says you'll remember them and do all the mitzvos. So both of them have a kol, have an all, but in the first verse, you'll remember all of them and do them. And in the second verse, you'll remember them and do all of them. So this is what he is addressing. How come in one place the remembering is all, and in the other place the doing is all? One is you'll remember all of them, one is you'll do all of them. So that already means that if we could answer that, we might understand why we have, have it twice, why there's two verses. Because at first it sounded like it was maybe a repetition. But it's, we know it isn't a repetition, because the Torah never repeats itself. So if the Torah never says anything unnecessary, then there must be a difference, and this might be a clue. So he need pasuk harishon hizkir. In the first verse, it mentions kol mitzvos Hashem, all the mitzvos of God. Eitzel hazachira by the thinking about it, by the remembering velo eitzel hasiya, but not by the doing. Aval bepasuk hasheni, but in the second verse, sovei ves kol mitzvosai, the all the mitzvos gets referenced on gam al ha'asiyah v'halo davarhu. And isn't that something? Um, it sounds to me like what he's saying is that the es mitzvosai in the second verse refers to the remembering and the doing. Meaning it's not just the doing. So the way I said the question, it sounds like he's already taken one more step even in his question and said, well, the es mitzvosai being at the end refers to both things that were just before it. The nira. So it seems, she'adua she'ein biyada adam l'kayim is called tatar mitzvos. We know that it's really not within anyone's power to keep all 613 mitzvos. Okay? There, a kohen... Can, uh, as far as I know, a Kohen can never give truma. <laughs> okay? Because he's a Kohen. He, he receives truma. He doesn't give truma. Okay? Men can't bring a korban yoledes. They can't bring a korban after they have a baby. They just can't do it. But there are things that women can't do. Women can't bring a korban that a man might have to bring. So even just in the world of the base Hamikdash alone, nobody can do everything. He says some mitzvahs are only for kings, which means at any one time there's only one person. <laughs> We've had histories where there were two, but <laughs> really, there should be only one person who can do that mitzvah. There are mitzvahs that are specific to a kohen or to a shofet, to a judge. But the obligation to learn that applies to all mitzvahs. Meaning, maybe only a Kohen can uh, sprinkle blood on the altar. But it's a mitzvah for anybody to learn about sprinkling, the mitzvah of sprinkling the blood on the altar. Zehu uzachartem. This is, you will remember, you will think about it. It will be in your mind. Inyan hazechira vehalimud. The concept of learning about it, of thinking about it, of turning it over in your mind and having awareness of the mitzvos, zeshayach be kol mitzvos Hashem. That applies to everyone in terms of all the mitzvos of Hashem. So that's the verse we're in. Uzechartem as kol mitzvos Hashem. You can think about and learn about all the mitzvos of Hashem. Aval ha'asiyah, but doing them, lo nimtza be kol ha'mitzvos. 
but it wouldn't be accurate for this verse to say all the mitzvahs, and you'll do them. In other words, you'll do the ones that apply to you to do. You will do them that which is possible for you to do. But the second verse, who hemsheikh, is a continuation from something that is in between these two segments. What came in between? You'll remember all the mitzvahs of Hashem and do them, and you will not stray after your hearts and after your eyes, which you will be seduced after. There is an obligation of the heart that everyone is obligated in. And there is no exception. When it comes to these obligations, in order that you should remember and do, because in these situations, both the thinking about and the doing is shayach to all of those mitzvos. It's worth also pointing out that we have, wait a minute, I mean, I could remember this, but I doubt I will the next time I get here. Okay. We have consistently in our lives a principle that if there's a mitzvah you can do, you do it. And if there's a mitzvah you cannot do, then you go as far as you can toward doing it, and that's called that you did it. At the point where you are stopped, you're anus, you're forced, then, okay, so we say you did the mitzvah as much as could be done. So in some cases, a person is trying to do a mitzvah. I'm trying to, I don't know, whatever it is, do biker cholim, and I'm really stopped from being able to do it. Maybe I get to the hospital and find out the person was released. So I walk in, they're walking out the other side of the revolving door. I miss them. I came, I traveled, I tried to do the mitzvah with Bikr Cholim and uh, wasn't able to do the mitzvah. So I still get credit. To the extent that I was able to do the mitzvah, I get the credit for it. What about Carbonos? We can't bring Carbonos now. So we do everything else possible. We learn about Carbonos. We talk about Carbonos. We daven Carbonos. We walk through every step of the bringing of the korban as we're walking through our own davening. And we're having the kavanos that we would have in the, in, the, in the korban. And we're hopefully having an impact on our inner selves that we would have from walking through the korban. There's a pasuk, tikon tefilasi ketores lefanecha. May the arrangement of my prayers be ketores before you, Hashem. And we're, we're familiar with that, and we're more or less comfortable with it. You do as far as you can do. And it's not just, oh, this mitzvah doesn't apply to me. No, it's that because I want to do the mitzvah so much, so I take it as far as I can. Mm-hmm. And that is the way I can do the mitzvah. If there's a mitzvah, we, we have a principle that when a person learns about karbanos, it is considered that he brought karbanos. Mm-hmm. You did the mitzvah. So there are people who have a custom to say 
the sections of the Torah about the Karbanos in their davening. And that's because we're davening in place of the Karbanos, and when you learn about the Karbanos, it's as if you brought the Karban. Before Pesuket de Zimra. There's a whole section of Karbanos. Here it is. <laughs> Stuck in the wrong place. Let me put that here. Okay, so I heard Rabbi Reisman, he quoted a very amazing example of this from the Noda Yehuda. So I just thought I would, I would mention it here. Which is, um, Sfardim say every day, Ein and Pitom Hakatoris. Which, Pitom Hakatoris is one of these things they say in Shul Ashkenazim, only say it on Shabbos. They say, we say only in Kelokenu and Pito Makatoris only on Shabbos. And women very rarely say Pito Makatoris because they are doing whatever they're doing after they sang in Kelokenu, talking mostly. <laughs> okay. Um, and the Nodabi Yehuda asks, how come Ashkenazim don't say in Kelokenu and Pito Makatoris every day, even though Ashkenazim, even though Sfardim do? He says, okay, well, Ashkenazim do not say pitom hakatores, which is about the katores, the incense, which is kind of the ultimate part of the korban process in the Beis HaMikdash, because there's a halacha. The halacha is that if someone brings katores and leaves out an ingredient, it is very severe chait. And when you learn about karbanos, and you can't bring them, then the learning is as if you brought the korban. And Ashkenazim hold that during the week, you're at the end of davening, you're in a rush, you're setting up the kiddush, whatever it is, you're in a rush, you might leave something out. And that's severe enough to warrant, maybe don't say it except on Shabbos, because on Shabbos, you're not in a rush. So you can stop, and you can enjoy, and you can pay attention, and you can still have the mitzvah of bringing ketores to the greatest extent possible without a base on mikdash. So why not in kelokenu? Oh, we could still sing in kelokenu. That's not the ketores. He says, no, you have to understand that the ketores is associated with wealth, which is interesting. I knew about the shulchan. Didn't know about the Ketoris. He says, Ketoris is associated with wealth. And we have elsewhere in the Torah, I think in Tavarim, where Hashem says, you will be going into battle and you'll say, who can possibly save us in this battle? And then the next day after you fought the battle and won because God was with you, you will say, it is my might and my strength which fought this battle because this is really common human nature. We're worried we won't be able to do it, and then we are successful because God makes us successful, and then we think, wow, I really am strong. I really did do a good job. And we totally forget how panicked we were beforehand from the perspective of ahead of time when we knew we weren't, didn't really have the ability to do it. So therefore, before we say pitom hakatores, which is a wealth-bringing event, or experience, we say Ein Kelokenu. There is none like God. Who is like God? No one is like God. Only God is the source of all power. He's our king. He's our strength, right? Mm -hmm. And that, the purpose of saying Ein Kelokenu is to 
kind of ready our minds for Pitzon HaKatoris so that we go into it with the right attitude and don't come out of it with, oh, it was my own strength that did all this. So therefore, on Shabbos, if we're not saying Pitzon HaKatoris, we also don't, um, not on Shabbos, during the week, if we're not saying Pitzon HaKatoris, then we also wouldn't say in Kelokenu, because the reason that in Kelokenu is there in the davening is to prepare our minds for Pitzon HaKatoris. Now, why do I, I, I thought this was a very, very interesting halachic to our Torah. But it's also an example of how seriously we mean it, with the Chazal mean it, when Chazal tell us that when you learn the mitzvah, when you speak of the karbanos, you are doing them to the extent you can. You can't do more than that. Which means there's a power here of, you will remember, you may not be able to do all the mitzvahs, but you can learn all the mitzvahs. You can remember all the mitzvahs. Which means, and this is universal, and isn't limited to Beis HaMikdash, not Beis HaMikdash, because no matter what the situation is, no one is doing all the mitzvahs. By the way, I thought this was such an amazing new way of thinking about it, especially since we've spent all this time talking about tzitzis, and we're all women, and we're not wearing tzitzis. But now, this is it. This is how much we wear tzitzis. It's not unique to women. A man can sit and learn about a korban yoledis, and that's how he can do the korban as best as possible. Right? So each of these, like, it's such an amazing concept. In a sense, there is no mitzvah that is held back from us. Because to the extent it's held back, so that's God's will, that we not actualize and do it. But nothing stops us from drawing close to the mitzvah. Okay. There's a Mishnah and Avos. Now we're going we're gonna to move to Va'asisem Osam. You shall do the mitzvahs. I mean, we already just have moved to Vasisim Osam because sometimes the best way you can do it is as much as you can do. And if you can't bring that fully down to action, then you can't. It's an important message to have here where we're talking about connecting with the spiritual by means of the physical to be reassured that you do what you can do. That comes from a drive to want to do. Meaning the ability to do all the mitzvahs relies on wanting very badly to do them. Because it's only when you want it that when you learn it and strive towards it, it's called that you did it and you were prevented. What could you do? Rabbi Akiva teaches in Avos, Gimel, Mishnah Yutes. It doesn't say Rabbi Akiva there. It says it a few verses before because it's a string of quotes from Rabbi Akiva. But it is Rabbi Akiva who says it. Hakol tzafui, everything is anticipated, is seen in advance. Vaharishus nesuna, but permission is given. We have free will. God knows what will happen, and yet we have free will. Uvetov ha'olam nidon. The world is judged with goodness. Vehakolofi rov hamaaseh. And everything counts according to rov hamaaseh. So we have to, the question is, what does that mean, rov hamaaseh? So first of all, we see that how much you, rov means maybe quantity or allotness. I'm not sure what the word for that is. Uh, quantity. How much the ma'aseh, the deed. Everything, what it comes down to is how much did you do? Right? We're talking about vasi You should do the mitzvahs. So the Rambam says, he, he points out something, it's rov ha'ma'aseh, not godel ha'ma'aseh, not the size of the action, 
the amount of the action, the, of the deeds. Shahamalos lo yusagu lefi shir godel hamase, ela lefi mispar hamase. Our actions are judged not by their size, but their frequency or the number of actions. And he goes on to explain the Rambam. I'm going to read you an English, um, some of it is translation, some is paraphrase of the Rambam. This is from a book about Rabbi Akiva by Rabbi Kolitz. Rabbi Akiva would say, all is foreseen, yet free choice is granted. The world is judged with grace, yet all is according to the predominance of the deeds. This teaching represents the crowning glory of Rabbi Akiva's ethical teachings. Uh, whatever background he has to that, I'm not, I don't know why. In explaining the correctness of Rabbi Akiva's dictum, Maimonides is unable to restrain himself and pays a compliment to Rabbi Akiva, which is a very rare occurrence in Maimonides' commentary. <laughs> he states, this statement contains very great matters, and it is fitting that it be by Rabbi Akiva. This is short in its meaning. I say that human virtues are not acquired by the quality of the deeds, but rather their quantity. In other words, they are acquired by the frequency of the repetition of the good deeds. This will affect a strong acquisition. And not when a person does one single great good deed, for this alone will not affect a strong acquisition for him. By way of example, if a person, this is a rather famous example of the Rambam. If a person gives 1,000 zehuvim, like coins, at, gold coins, at one time to a single deserving individual and does not give anything to anyone else, he will not acquire the trait of generosity with this one great deed as he would if he were to give 1,000 zehuvim in 1,000 different times, giving each zehuv in an act of generosity. This would constitute 1,000 acts of generosity and would affect a strong acquisition of that quality, of that mitzvah. In the former case, however, his soul was greatly aroused one time to do good, but afterwards the spirit left him. And similarly, the Torah does not reward the person who ransomed a prisoner for 100 dinarim, or who gave charity in the amount of 100 dinarim to a poor man, which is sufficient for his needs, as much as it does to the person who ransomed 10 prisoners or provided the needs of 10 poor people, each one in the amount of 10 dinarim. This is the principle underlying the statement, according to the prominence of the deed, but not according to the greatness of the deed. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do great deeds. It just means that you should realize that we are, there is a level to which we are judged according to the frequency and the number of the good deeds, even more than the size of the good deeds. And this, right, which I have to say, I never connected it to the Rabbi Yisrael Salanter point of when you're doing teshuva, you choose something small and keep it going consistently. I never made that leap between those two sets. They're two separate ideas, and yet they're so obviously the same idea. They really are the same idea. But I had learned this Rambam. I had come across it before in the context of Hilchos Tzedakah. That's where you see it. People don't even quote that it comes from so much from the beginning, from Pirkei Avos. Where you see it is, if a person has a choice between giving one amount that's large or several amounts that are small, that, and you can't take what I'm saying here as like, how you should actually do it, because there's a lot of other 
interacting factors in any tzedakah decision, like how much someone needs and things like that, how much you have to give. That's why you put a, put a coin in your, in your pushka every that's day. That's right. All things being equal, it is better to give small amounts much more often because it cultivates in you that you become a more giving person. Okay. So now this is what I was trying to pretend. It didn't match to pretend. Yay. Back to the chuva book. This is kind of what Hashem, I mean, being a parent, this is Hashem has given us the opportunity to be considered. <laughs> to do the same thing over and over <laughs> and over. And through this, we become shaped and we change. Hopefully for the better, depending what it is that we do over and over and over again. Okay. So this, I'm back to Rabbi Leichter's book, Ad Teshuva, um, because I found that he, yet again, added a new layer of understanding for me to this idea of the, why it is important to make a small change or a small action and keep that going consistently. So he says, even after we div- discover an amira na'ima in Torah, a pleasant command, a pleasant way that the Torah is speaking to us, and even after we have developed a deep intrinsic connection to Hashem's will, and we may even have engaged in powerful and effective vidui, confession, over our various. We might even be able to see what we've done wrong and be able to say it and admit it. But as long as we haven't changed our actions, the process of tshuva remains incomplete. Now, it's true that we're talking about tshuva, but we're, this is the opposite of a tangent. Because what we're talking about is va'asisemosam. You shall do the mitzvos and relate to the spiritual world through the physical actions. So as long as the change inside of us is not connected to the physical actions, it's not really complete. It is the same idea. It's not a tangent that we got to step by step going into different ideas that are related. It is the same idea. Okay. First of all, when we commit to a small but meaningful and lasting change in action, if we do that and it's underpinned by having wanted to do it because we found a way that we connected to it and that the Torah and Mitzvah is connected to us and that we want to change, then this, first of all, that small action in this world is representative of something big and deep and significant that's going on inside of us. Mm-hmm. So the significance of the small action is bigger than the action itself. So that's piece one. I, I felt like I needed these extra pieces in, to relate because sometimes it can feel like what's the point of the small action? Even if you tell me a thousand times, well, maybe if you tell me a thousand times, it will have the impact, right? Right? HaKadosh Baruch Hu appreciates small actions. But how does that work on me? Okay. So piece number one is just like everything physical in the world is an expression of a much greater spiritual truth. Also my actions. Also my actions are expressions in the physical world of a much greater spiritual truth. I'm a good company. I'm in the world. So that's bit number one that helps me value the significance 
of making some very tiny change. Okay. Part number two is that because it's small and because it is furthermore tied to a positive desire for change, for wanting to do the mitzvah, not fine, I'll do it because I know I really should be doing it, but because I really yearn to do that mitzvah now, now that I've gone through this whole discovery phase, then it will give me the strength to overcome the difficulties that will come about in reaction to the change. So I know, you know you've mentioned many times, and I've heard Rabbi Kellerman talk about flying under the radar, right? the idea that if you make a very small change, then maybe your Yetzirah won't get so worked up about it. What he's saying here is it's a slightly different way of thinking about that. One is that it doesn't feel like an alien imposition, that the change you're making feels like it's coming from you, not somebody outside of you trying to force you, change you, lecture, lecture you, push you. The change itself, you can feel that it's your own will. But the second, what's important about that is, there's a lot that's important about that, but one piece that's important is that there will be resistance to change no matter how small. Think you'll be tired, things will come up, somebody will push your buttons, there will be change, there will be, you'll get thrown off your schedule, there will be some kind of resistance and having an association, when we associate the action with our positive will and desire, that will give us the strength to be able to overcome the Sahara and to overcome the resistance and the obstacles that will be around us. He puts it, developing this natural association ignites our resolve to implement the action we've committed to. So that when you've committed to, um, I'll give an example we had with Kavana. Remember when we talked about Kavana years ago? Just show up. Mm-hmm. The commitment might be that I'm going to say one bracha every day. The commitment might be I'm going to open a sitter and say something out of a sitter every day with no minimum amount. Now, some, pers- some people might be at the point where, no, there is a minimum amount. I will say all of brachos every day. Or I'll say all of brachos and shema and shmonasrei every day. Whatever it is that you're truly... But you really want this commitment to be the smallest possible commitment so that no matter what, you can stick with it. And if that comes from the desire to do it, then we will become transformed. We become changed inside because our actions and our will are aligned with each other and our actions and our will are aligned with the Torah. Not maybe in a big way, but hakolafi rovamase, in a small way, over and over and over and over again, 50 times and 100 times and 1,000 times, I have taken an action where my action and my will and my desire and God's will are all lined up together. I have to tell you, I did not think about the principle of doing the same action, small action, many times consistently, that way. I mean, it's like the drug. It's not only the words of Torah that's going to break the stone, but it's also the action. Yes, that makes the change. change. 
but the it's not just the water; it's the dripping. I think yeah. part one aspect that's very critical here is we're near the end of Shema, which means we're starting to transition to Shmona Esrei. And as we make a transition to Shmona Esrei, we're going to start to tackle, or have to tackle, the issue of our will not aligning with God's will, and how could we possibly ever, right, like it seems like an unachievable goal. It doesn't seem like it's something, it seems like, okay, there might be righteous people in the world who get there, but it doesn't seem like it's possible for us to even aspire to a corner of making God's will my will, like and putting them into alignment. And what was just handed to us here was an incredible gift, which was a gift of, you want to make your will God's will, God's will your will? You could do it. It's going to be very small. It'll be one small area, but you can do it every single day, over and over and over and over again. And the impact on you will not just be an impact that you did the right thing, and isn't that nice? You were tempted to the wrong thing. That's not the impact we're talking about anymore. We're talking about your actions, your feelings, your intellect, all the levels on the ladder being brought into perfect alignment with God's will, which is the expression of the mitzvah. And it might be in a very small way, and it might only be for a minute a day that you manage at the beginning to do something. I mean, there may be other areas in your life, so you may have more, more minutes than that. But I don't know that I ever saw before a practical, possible hope, opening of the window or opening of the door to say, come in. Pirkei Avos keeps telling us, you know, make God's will your will. The Torah keeps saying it. The davening keeps saying it. But we always knew someday we're going to come around the corner of Shema and have to deal with it. And sure enough, you come around to the end of Shema and the Torah and Chazal have put in here the parts of the Torah that will start leading your mind to be able to do it. We know that the davening is structured to walk us through the avoda, but it's still very awesome every time you realize that it is. It is walking you through the avoda of the heart. Okay. Now we can better understand, I'm reading again, now we can better understand Rav Yisrael Salanter's recommendation concerning what type of action we should undertake to perform. As discussed in chapter two, his advice is that we attempt to correct one of the easier aspects of the mitzvah. Since our commitment to an action should be based on the Amira Naima work we have done, flowing out of a deep and organic relationship with the mitzvah we focus on, Rav Yisrael's approach is eminently logical. Do you see how it's exactly you think about the mitzvahs, you learn about the mitzvahs, and that will bring you to do them? Of course, sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes we, we do the action and that will affect us, right? But what, what he's saying here is something very powerful because sometimes you go year after year knowing that you have to change your actions, making the same resolutions every Rosh Hashanah. And you keep finding that you're making the same resolutions again. You didn't get anywhere. This is a different path. It requires a lot of time to figure out what the commitment should be. 
it sounds like it should be easy since the commitment itself should be small and simple, but it's not easy to figure it out. If it were easy to figure out, we wouldn't keep making the same resolutions year after year. So we can now more deeply appreciate why we must regard the action we commit to as being absolutely non-negotiable, to be consistently carried out regardless of the circumstances, because the point of a practical undertaking is not merely to strengthen and intensify our avodas Hashem. It entails more than having the resolve to fulfill our commitment or Kabbalah. It is rather about giving concrete expression to the change that we have already undergone during the period of Teshuvah. Whoa. A practical undertaking. You're reading that again? Yes. It is rather about giving concrete expression to the change that we have already undergone during the period of Teshuvah. When you understand that that's what your Kabbalah is about, number one, the importance of it is the consistency more than the size. Because the one thing you don't want to do is not fulfill it. Because it means so much to you. Because this is the expression of your true inner will to do good. So it should be very small so that you really can keep it no matter how you feel. That's why it should be to open the sitter every day and say one word out of it, or to say one bracha concentrating on one word, so that even when it's midnight and two in the morning and you're getting into bed late and you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't do my Kabbalah, it's still manageable. And it's not just manageable, but inside of you is, oh, I really want to do it because I don't want to miss. The smallness is a bigness. The inner work of tshuva, the transformation of our inner selves, consequently demands transformation of our behavior, our outer selves. And this will ensure that our new personal reality is made up not only of different perceptions and drives, but different actions as well. We should invest great effort in our search for an action that we will be able to maintain under all circumstances. Okay. He goes on. He does, he does recognize that it may look as if it is a contradiction to the famous statement of the Hasef Rachinuch that we are, our inside is affected by our external actions because what he is saying to do is the opposite. He's saying that the external action will affect our insides, but he's saying that it has to come first from the work on the inside, okay? Which does sound like it's different from the Sefer Achinuch. He, he does also show that it's not necessarily different after all. But I don't want to, that for us would be a tangent from Shema. There's another piece, this is, I did not see from Rabbi Leichter, but which I think is a principle we already know and starts to show itself as being relevant here, which is why is it so important that the action be so small? Because in the end, we have permission, we have free will, 
but we don't really have much control over the results. Which means that when it comes to tshuva, which is all about our will, having the action be small that is tied to it, in ter- especially in terms of tshuva, the scale of the action matters not at all. Meaning it matters that we chose something small for practical reasons and for meaning reasons, but the truth is the size of our actions is very little under our control anyway. So what is important is the choice to stick with the action. That is proven by the fact that we stick with it no matter what. But it also helps us achieve the change without losing the humility. Because we, okay, we live in a society where self-discipline is really worshipped. It's funny because it's a society that's so me-centered and so desire-driven. So where does self-discipline come in? But the truth is, exercise and discipline and diet, there are a lot of people out there who have nothing to do with Torah, who are really good with self-discipline. So number one, we could maybe learn something from them. (laughs) At least I could. But number two, we can see that self-discipline does not always lead to humility. Self-discipline is not always part of avoda, a sense of, of yearning and trying to draw close to a God who is greater than us. And I suspect that in tying our teshuva and our will and our desperation to grow to commitments that are small, it doesn't mean we don't also take big actions. But these commitments that are tshuva changes are so small, it helps us to not feel that it was me who's so wonderful. Look how wonderful I am that I'm, right? We have to pat ourselves on the back and be able to say, look at that, that's amazing. Look at that. I can look back and see that for 60 days I kept the Kabbalah. That's, that's an incredible achievement. I should be able to pat myself on the back. Good, that's good. That's really good. Thank you, Hashem, for helping me to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Because yes, it's my will, and yes, it's my commitment, and yes, there were obstacles, and yet I know perfectly well that there's plenty of things that I wanted to do very badly and wasn't able to do. So I still have to be grateful. And so there is this sort of, I think it, it's like a perfect walk on that boundary of, of the power of our will and still remaining humble before God. It's really like being humble before God. That's very uplifting. I wasn't being sarcastic, it's very uplifting. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna stop here. And next week in Mitzvah Hashem, we will speak more about the lo sasuru achare levavchem. Do not stray after your heart and after your eyes.